find this scientifically fascinating. You're listening to KUCI Irvine. Disengage this computer now. Broadcasting at 88.9 FM. Hello, computer. And on the web at KUCI.org. The most reliable computer ever made. And streaming through iTunes. Don't expect any mercy during the Great Robot Wars. And Peter Radio brought to you by machines. Returning to normal broadcast in 3, 2, 1. The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. To find out more about this talk show or other talk shows broadcasting on KUCI, log on to our website at KUCI.org or check out the latest program guide. Good morning and welcome to this June 27th, 2012 edition of Writers on Writing on KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. We are broadcasting live from the University of California campus in Irvine. We're streaming on the web at KUCI.org and we are always available via podcast. More information on that later in the show. I'm your host, Marie Stone. This is Writers on Writing. We are dedicated to the art and business of books. Each and every week, Barbara and I are here with authors, poets, literary agents, giving you the latest and most up-to-date information on the publishing world. I'm joined now by Ava Gabrielson, and coming up in the second half of the show, Swedish crime novelist Karen Gendersen talking about her latest novel, The Gingerbread House, will be on, so stay tuned for that. Ava Gabrielson is a Swedish architect, author, political activist, feminist, and longtime partner of the late Swedish mystery novelist Stieg Larsson. As a writer, in addition to working with Stieg on his literary projects, she is the co-author of several books, including a monograph on the subject of cohabitation in Sweden, a Swedish government study on how to create more sustainable housing, and a forthcoming study on the Swedish urban planner Per Olaf Holman. She has also translated into, uh, into Swedish Philip Dick's The Man in the High Castle. As an activist, she works to end violence against women. Her memoir is There Are Things I Want You to Know About Stieg Larsson and Me. It's published by Seven Stories, and it's largely, among other things, the subject of our chat this morning. Eva joins me from her home in Stockholm this morning, or in her case, uh, this evening. Eva, welcome. How are you? Thank you. Well, I'm fine. Weather is good, finally. We almost, we were almost flooded these last few days. Oh, no. And, and you just returned home. You were here on book tour for, for quite a while, yeah? Yeah, almost two weeks. Uh, fortunately, uh, not the whole country, just the upper right-hand quarter of it. <laughs> <laughs> the sad part of the country. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So uh, so let's dive in. For those who aren't familiar with your story and your your story with Stieg, why don't you um, introduce us to the to the memoir a little bit? Talk about um, talk about your life with Stieg a little bit and your decision to write the memoir. Uh, well, we had quite a long life together. Uh, we were uh, we knew each other for thirty two years, and we were living together for thirty of those years. So. Uh, and so we we sort of grew up together, given that we met at 18. Uh, grew up is maybe the wrong word, but matured. Uh, so uh, the, um, the view of life and, and uh, the philosophy and parts of the politics and so on, we sort of shaped together during our years together. So we had... We had uh, we had a good life, I think. It ended abruptly, only six months after he had um, 
signed the contracts for what was to be the Millennium success, he just uh, literally dropped dead from a heart attack, uh, which uh, nobody had expected, and and nobody had not. I don't think even think he ever had felt sick or anything like that. So so he he never went to a doctor or to do any medical checkups and so on. So it was quite a shock. So our long life together ended rather abruptly. Mm. Um, and uh, as for my writing, well, um, I never really planned to publish a book. <laughs> so um, I don't really know where to start. <laughs> <laughs> you know, many might not realize the reasons that you, you couldn't get married. And, um, and, and I think that plays such a large part in the in the memoir certainly plays such a large part in your life can you sort of describe uh, you know the reasons that you didn't get married and, mm. and kind of what led to that uh well Steg was uh, uh for most parts of, he was always interested in 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 uh, in in politics and especially especially the the politics and the activities of the neo-nazis the extreme right wing and he he was writing actively about this for a British magazine called Searchlight uh, from 1983. Uh, he was sending in reports and articles on on the developments in Scandinavia. Uh, <clears throat> later on, uh, in about ten years later on, uh, we started a Swedish version of Searchlight called Expo. So then. Uh, the articles became longer and more focused on Sweden and Scandinavia and in Swedish. And uh, during these whole times from, from the late 1980s and all through the ni- 1990s, um, uh, Stig was um, uh, threatened by the extreme right wing. He got uh, threats by mail, threats by phone, uh, and um, bullets were sent to him. Um, there were uh, some. Some um, they had these. They had their own uh, neo-Nazi uh, newspapers where they put out Stig's uh, name and address and phone and so on, and um, said that this is an enemy of the Swedish state or at least of them. So he should not be allowed to walk the streets anymore. Um, so, um, well, he was threatened in short, and that that um, to keep him safe, from my point of view and from his point of view, to keep me safe, we decided not to marry because it would be a security thing to stay unmarried in the Swedish public records. Uh, <clears throat> that meant that his home would not be traceable, so we would at least have some place that was safe. So that was the reason we didn't marry. I was I was thinking about this as I was reading the memoir and living with the shadow of death all the time with these death threats and political entanglements and you know and the the reasons you couldn't get formally married and then to lose him in this sort of sudden and you know unexpected way and it got me thinking about the ways that we prepare ourselves for death and prepare ourselves for our own deaths and for our loved ones and and you know whether that's a, a worthwhile tax to even you know try and try and do or if it's an achievable task and you know I'm wondering um, I'm wondering about your your thoughts on that having gone through 
um, sort of a, a lifetime and a pressure cooker with, you know, with this hanging over you? Mm, well, the threats weren't continuous, you see. Uh, they were sort of intermittent. They came and, and <clears throat> faded away and then returned a few years later and so on. That depended on, on uh, what was happening within these groups and who were in jail or not and who were suddenly new recruits and being very aggressive and so on. So it wasn't all the time. It was just there in the... It was acute at the times. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't really... Um, constant act threat uh, that meant that we could have some kind of normal life anyway mm -hmm. uh, and we we felt that we we managed um, I mean they even thought that Steg was gay so he was uh, in their world um, uh, connected to this man and the other man constantly. There was always speculations about who he was dating at, at uh, the time, So, uh, but never any woman. So I think our security system to keep him, me out of the way and his home out of the way, out of their, their um, attention really, really worked. Mm. So uh, we could live somewhat normal. But as to prepare for someone's death or prepare for your own I think it's it's nothing you you really do it sort of goes against your your mindset you 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 you, you always plan for for uh, for living you always plan what to do tomorrow or the next year or something like that and we were no different from that point of view there's just one exception and that's actually Stig himself in 1977 when he was traveling to Africa and um, uh, to uh, Ethiopia, which was currently then in, in, uh, in a civil war with fractions killing each other on the streets. Um, and he, he, he was going there to partly for some kind of political assignment, but partly also to try to be a stringer for some some of the Swedish larger dailies. Um, and he thought he might not return. He thought he might be killed down there. So before leaving, he secretly wrote me a goodbye letter, uh, to, which almost opens with, when you read this, uh, you already know that I'm dead. But this is what I want you to do for your future. And this is how I felt about you. And I want to thank you for what you gave me and so on. And and uh, that letter, actually, uh, I didn't know about it until after he died when I found it by accident. And um, it really helped me a lot. So that's one thing I think people could do. Yeah. If not else, <laughs> write goodbye letters or preferably talk to people yeah. Yeah. before. Do the things you really want to do because you actually might just be run over by a car tomorrow. Um, uh, my guest is uh, Ava Gabrielson. The book is There Are Things I Want You to Know About Steve Larson and Me. Uh, so originally this was based on diary entries that you had just for yourself to recover from or to, to sort of process his death, that it, that it didn't start out to be a memoir. Um, has the memoir worked regardless of how it's done in the world and, and for readers, but has it worked for its intended purpose for you as a, as a document that's, that's sort of helped you 
through the past seven years? Yes, I I absolutely think it, it helped a lot. Uh, it gave me a perspective on what really happened. Because uh, having diaries, uh, entries like that, uh, you, I, I remember just writing them down, uh, just the things I thought were important and odd things like I had breakfast today or I cooked my first meal today, things like that. Um, it, uh, when, when reading them a few years after, that's when I started to, to uh, move them from these handwritten notebooks to, to my computer. Going back to that, I realized that how horrible the shock was, how deep it was, and also that I was out of it, out of the acute shock, and I could see in retrospect uh, what this did to me. And, and um, so it, it, it really, really helped to, to, to write. Um, and I just did it because my sister told me to do it. Um, she said, if you don't do it, you will not remember anything afterwards because that's what shock is about. You are supposed to be um, somewhere else in your head and you're supposed to forget most of the horrible things that you went through. That's the whole point of it. Mm-hmm. And by writing, I could keep it and analyze it afterwards and cleanse myself of it in a better way later on. So, yes, I absolutely recommend people who who, who are in, in different trauma situations to, to write something like letters to yourself to read in the future. Yeah, I often talk to memoirists about, you know, what the, the process of writing reveals, that the process of living through something can't reveal and yeah that kind of that quiet time to reflect on the experience and you know delve into it in a different way that's um it is an incredibly valuable incredibly valuable thing Mm, absolutely so i'm curious about your your work in translation and and um translating philip dick's work translating some other works and uh, obviously this book has been translated, you know, in, in both languages. And I'm wondering if you feel like there are things one language can convey, particularly about your, your memoir, one language can convey better than the other where the holes are in, in Swedish versus where the holes are in English and, and your experience of the, the novel side by side in the two languages. Hmm. Um... Well, things do change in translation. Uh, I was fortunate enough with the English version of my book to to have a very, very good uh, American translator who did a marvelous job and, and her suggestions on how to slightly um, put two sentences together or, or move some paragraphs to another place uh, was... was uh, I think really made the book uh, better in, in, in English than it is in Swedish from from that point of view. Um, there are, I mean, it's, it's it's sort of the right kind of English for the book, whereas the Swedish version, of course, I think always would be better because words have have it's my language, so it's it has my meaning in it. But uh, the English version of People who I know in Sweden who are English-speaking from the beginning, they say that they they get um, more sense of, of the emotions and the events 
from the English version than they get from the Swedish. So I think sometimes translations can actually make books work in in either language, uh, depending on the translator. Mm-hmm. And I, I worked. I, I also worked a lot with the English translator as well, uh, discussed things, saying okay to things, explaining things uh, so that she could find a better word or I could react to some 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 wording or some misunderstanding or, or some interpretation that wasn't quite right and so on, given that I've translated myself and I and I read quite a lot of in English as well. So it's it's a it's a process to to help deliver your book into another language. You have it's hard work actually. Yeah. But yeah. It, it, but it's fun. It's it's interesting. It becomes something a, a little bit different than the original was. So that's funny because I hadn't focused on on you being on the other side of the translation for some reason. I don't know why. I was, I was picturing you writing it in English as well. Uh, so that, that must be an interesting process for you to be translated when, um, when you are, you know, typically the translator. Was that, a, was that a strange experience to sort of see your, your own words taken by somebody else and put into English? Yeah. yeah. Very, very strange. But, um, um, well, not, not, not strange, really, but um, it was... Uh, it was a bit, bit, bit exciting, uh, a different kind of journey to, to take. Uh, and uh, you also realize how, how much things can get uh, distorted in translation if, if the original author doesn't take the time or, in my case, uh, has the kind of contracts that uh, obliges the translator to, to talk to the original author as well. So I think we... All of all of us won on this kind of, of uh, cooperation. Right, right. And the work in architecture—it's—it's it's funny. I've talked to novelists who say they they feel like architects, and you know that building a novel or building a memoir is sort of like you know building the rooms of a house and finding these unexpected doors, and you know that it can be sort of a very mathematical, systematic process. And I was wondering, because I haven't talked to a lot of architects who are also novelists, your views on the the similarities and whether that field translates it all into your your writing if it's helped you at all or if it's just a totally different part of your brain that you know you leave behind when you sit down at the keyboard i think it's the same part of the brain actually uh i actually recognize some of some of that uh you try to fit in the next piece in the puzzle into your writing as well you 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 you, you're not really sure what's wrong with the picture you're getting in your writing but you know there's something missing and you try something else or and especially this word or this sentence that just comes up that you know will needs to be expanded or, or lead somewhere else or, or depends on how you write it's 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 uh, for me it's a spontaneous thing to do anyway it's not something that you can plan from a to z uh, this is what is going to be about but you 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 do it rather spontaneously and in that spon- spontaneity you, you 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 do these things by chance that are these doors you talk about yeah tell me a little bit about structuring the memoir uh, so you had a, a bulk of diary entries and 
the book is fairly, you know, chronological. Um, and it's, it's written in sort of, you know, small kind of article snippets. Um, so tell me about structuring the, the memoir and if it, if it came very organically, if it really was a matter of kind of chronologically telling your story or um, how, you, how you kind of emotionally and uh, physically mapped it out. Well, uh, um, the timeline, so to say, that was given from uh, my diaries, uh, day by day or month by month, uh, to to get, get a track on what had really happened to me. So that was already there. But in doing so, uh, writing this down, I, I also, or transcribing it rather into my computer in a digital form, uh, these doors appeared that you mentioned before uh, when I started to think about not just about what happened after Stieg died and why and so on, but I also started to think about the life we had together, um, how come we managed to stay together for so long, why didn't our roads part somewhere along the line, um, and what was... Uh, what was sort of joining us together. Um, and I remember there must be some answers to this. I had no answers to this, but I knew one answer was coffee. <laughs> <laughs> so I started to write this, which is the first chapter now about coffee, which uh, for us both started in our childhood. We, we were allowed to drink coffee at a very young age. And then coffee was also the symbol of... of friendship, uh, making up after quarrels, uh, having friends around, uh, throwing ideas about uh, or, or things like that. So it, it grew from, from there. And what did we have more in common except coffee? Well, we had this northern county in, in, in Sweden which is, has a harsh climate and where people for generations have relied on each other and to, to to survive. Uh, so it, it sort of just grew from there. I got one point after the other that, hmm, yeah, this might be something that that was uh, keeping us together. And, hmm, yes, this must be the kind of mind that uh, similarities in, in, in mind and in, in, in morals that uh, developed, uh, that we had as, as a common ground to, to also stay a common ground uh, during all these years. So actually, I can't really say exactly how I wrote this. It was very unplanned, and it was actually just for myself mm. for a very long time. And then someone said that, well, you, you have to make this into a book so you can get out of always answering questions about the Millennium Trilogy and about things. So you have to you have to do this. And that's when someone else said, yes, you have to do it as a book. I realized that it might be possible. Do you have any regrets about doing it as a book, about it being out there in the public, or has it made things, has it in fact done that, made things easier where you don't have to constantly answer questions about, uh, about things, <laughs> constantly repeat yourself? Uh, yeah. Uh, it, it, I, I, I do think it, it, it has got that, and, and uh, so that's one thing. It's my story out there, uh, and, and it's my. I can also um, present proofs and, and uh, evidence of what I'm, I'm saying, and so on. So, so uh, 
I feel quite good about it. It's it's like um, it's like uh, a chapter both open to me mm-hmm. uh, in the, in the way of understanding, but also a chapter closed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a that's a great way to think about it. I haven't uh, a lot of people talk about it as being a cathartic experience, or you know that you can can never come to complete closure over something, but that you know it's. Um, it, it sort of allows you to at least get your thoughts in an organized fashion. and, and uh, mm. but, but this idea of it being both an, an open chapter for discussion and a, a closed chapter, I think, is, is really insightful. That's true. Mm. Do you think that he was, uh, he obviously didn't, uh, didn't get to watch the, this massive amounts of success of his work. Do you think that he was quite satisfied at the time with where his work was? Yes, he, he was. He was extremely happy and um, at peace and uh, uh, there was a there was a serenity to him mm-hmm. that I haven't seen for for quite a few years uh, he was he was at peace with himself and with the world and with the future that we were planning for so he was happy he knew he'd done well he knew he would have a success uh, a normal success, but a big success in the northern part of Europe, and and he was looking forward to that. Uh, what later came was this global phenomena, but um, uh, which he couldn't fathom, um, and nobody else either. But I, I think he would have taken the global success in 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 stride as well. <laughs> But he, he experienced the success even even though he died nine months before it was published. Yeah. yeah. Mm. Sadly, we're drawing down on our time, but I'm wondering if uh, in your work as memoirist or as translator, as in your own writings, if you can leave us with advice or uh, wisdom that you've garnered over the years of, of writing. Uh, maybe not to force your writing, uh, but um, write what you feel is true to yourself. I think that's important. I don't think you can force anyone to become a writer, but I think there might be a little writer in everyone, given that you are writing about something that concerns you and something, and in a way that that your own language uh, is... is, uh, is being expressed and not a literary language or anything like that, which is one of the secrets of the writing of Millennium as well. Stegas wrote the way he told stories. Mm. Yeah, and this memoir is such a such a tribute to that, where it was is, is sort of the unintended memoir. Um, I think is is the most authentic one, right? That you that you know it, it you didn't sit down to plan to write a book, but it it came out of something that was was really true. What can be more true than diary entries? And yeah. uh, that really makes it incredibly um, close to the bone, I would say. Exactly, yeah. yeah. Ava, this was a huge pleasure. Thank you so much for, uh, for joining us this morning. Thank you very much. That was Ava Gabrielson. The book is There Are Things I Want You to Know About Steve Larson and Me. And uh, it's out and available in the U.S. now. You can find it uh, find it in your local independent bookstore is the best place to find it and keep those going. We're going to take a short break, but please stay with me. Karen Gerhardson will be here for the second half hour. You're listening to Writers on Writing on KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. We'll be right back. 
come back, baby. Please don't go. No, I love you, darling. Hate to see you go. Come back, baby. Let's talk it over one more time. My heart's full of sorrow. Mama aching tears. We gone twenty four hours, child. Seem like a thousand years. Come back, baby. Let's talk it over one more time. Talk it over before you go away. Come back, baby. Let's talk it over one more time. The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. To find out more about this talk show or other talk shows broadcasting on KUCI, log on to our website at KUCI.org or check out the latest program guide. And welcome back to Writers on Writing on KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. We are broadcasting live from the University of California campus in Irvine and streaming on the web at KUCI.org. This show will join the other interviews up on the web and available to you via podcast. Feel free to visit iTunes. We are under College Radio. You can visit Barbara's website at penonfire.com for direct downloads, as well as information on past shows, upcoming shows, salon events, and more. Speaking of salon events, we have another great one coming up on July 17th. Jess Walter, who was on the show a few weeks ago, is joining us. He's the author of The Financial Lives of Poets, among other things. And uh, these events always sell out fast, so if you're interested, I encourage you to sign up early, often. Uh, Again, that's Tuesday, July 17th at 7 o'clock at the Scape Gallery in Corona Del Mar. I'm your host, Marie Stone, and I'm joined now by Karen Gerhardson from the same publisher, even the same editorial team that brought you Steve Larson's Millennium Trilogy comes Karen, author of the Hammerby series, five crime novels that take place in the southern parts of Stockholm. Originally a mathematician, Karen has become one of Sweden's most highly praised crime authors, considered Sweden's number one female crime author by Borkora, the most popular book blog in Sweden. Many of the scenes depicted are self-experienced based on episodes from Karen's own childhood, and we will talk about that and uh, all manner of other things this morning. Karen, welcome. Thank you very much. Marie, nice to be with you. Oh, thanks for joining me. So far away. In the evening, no less, over there. <laughs> this is, this is yes, a huge it's treat. 6.30 in the evening. Oh, thank you. Thanks for doing this. So tell me a little bit about um, the Hammerby series. For, uh, for our American audience who, uh, who might not have delved into this yet, uh, take us into the Gingerbread House in particular, but sort of the whole series in general, sort of give us a flavor for the, uh, flavor for the novels. 
Well, I, I, um, before I wrote the Hammerby series, which is crime, I started by doing a philosophical novel some 20 years ago. Uh, but uh, then I got back to normal work. You know, I, I, in my dreams, I was supposed to become a famous author, well-known all over the world just by the first book. It was published, it was a good thing, but it didn't make me an author, really. So I went back to work, um, got married, had two kids and so on, and life went on. And then my husband persuaded me to... to um, start all over again, write something that I had um, considered long enough and something that interested me and publishers and the audience. So um, crime has always been an interest uh, for me. So I just started writing crime novels. Hmm. And I wanted to to write a, a series of books with the same police officers in the same neighborhoods, in the same part of Stockholm, just to... Uh, let the readers uh, learn to know the people in my books a little bit more for every book. Very so nice. that was the idea. That's great. That's great. What's the culture of writing in in Stockholm because, or in, in Sweden in general? Because I know in the U.S., you know, if you tell people you're a writer, you know, either everybody's a writer or, you know, your parents bat you over the head and, and tell you to, to go get a real job. Is there a, sort of a supportive community in, um, in Europe, either among the, the older generation as, as you're coming up through this? Do they encourage writing or, uh, or is this sort of crazy pipe dreams over there as, as it is over here? I think it is because it's quite hard to to be published as a writer. So I think most parents would tell their kids to <laughs> get a proper job first and then try <laughs> to do some writing, right. as I did. I, I uh, used to work as a mathematician, as a, an IT consultant before, and then I wrote just as a hobby on the side. Yeah. But it went well, so now I quit my, my old job and I'm just writing right now. That's fantastic. Okay, so talk about the, the gingerbread house and uh, where the idea of it originated in a little bit. You know, don't give too much away, obviously, but sort of the arc of the novel and um, take, us, uh, take us into it. Well, it was, uh, already when I started it, it was to, to, supposed to be the first part of a series of crime novels. And I decided to write three at the same time. And the first one was The Gingerbread House. And it came very easy to me because I was, it's about harassment in um, preschool and, well, also among adults and, and the rest of, oh, rest of school and so on. But I was bullied myself. I was harassed as a kid. So it came easy to me, the, the whole idea of the book. And um, was it, I, I'm a little bit curious about your character work because there are so many um, characters that uh, that we can all relate to. There's something incredibly satisfying about this novel in in you know, in terms of watching the tormentors get their get their due. <laughs> I don't know if there's something very satisfying in the writing of it, but there's certainly something very satisfying in the reading of it. Um, so tell much. Let's talk a little bit about the character work in this and whether or not these characters came to you. Um, you know, if they were sort of based on amalgams of people that you knew when you were growing up, if they came to you in whole cloth, if they were sort of, you know, um, just talk about how you uh, how you got to know these people. Well, I, I always invent 
my character. So there is no one picked from reality just like that. So, but I, you know, I pick bits and parts. Maybe the looks of somebody and the acting of somebody else, the temper of someone, or the story of somebody's life that I've heard about or noticed or read about or something like that. That makes me inter interested. I, I want all my characters to be of great interest for myself and hopefully also for the reader. So that's the idea. I want both the victims and um, the, the, the killers, yeah. the policemen, the main characters and minor characters to be real people made of flesh and blood. So I'm curious about, the, the thing that strikes me as incredibly hard about mystery writing, I love reading them, but I'm absolutely confident I could never do this, is following all of the, you know, all of the strands of the story, not letting any clues drop, pacing out the clues in the right places, you know, ensuring that, um, you know, things aren't... <laughs> The storylines aren't dropped. So let's talk a little bit about structuring this and and um, following all the bouncing balls. I imagine, do you have a room that's just covered in post-it notes or something so that you can follow sort of the arcs of the characters, the arcs of the story? Um, tell I me wish I had, but my room <laughs> where I'm sitting writing is too small, unfortunately. But I have to keep it all in mind. So I think a lot. I just sit on the coach for three or four months and... Uh, sort of invent the story and all the threads, all the parts of it, and how to put the reader somewhere in the storyline and the policeman somewhere else. And um, and me, myself, I know everything, so it's quite difficult as well not to give away too much. Right, right. Because, you know, I, I sometimes I'm mistaken and I realize when I read it again that, oh, this was too, a bit too early. They don't know about this yet. Right. But uh, it's a lot of thinking and uh, it's a lot of structuring behind this, Lo logics. And uh, as a mathematician, I like logic and thinking and sol solving problems and stuff like that. So yeah, I think it's good fun, but difficult it is. I was going to say, the mathematician uh, aspect of your personality would really come into play here, I would think, to try and, you know, keep everything so orderly. And um, so uh, tell me about the course of time over which you wrote, over, over which you wrote The Gingerbread House and then over which you wrote the, the five novels in total. How, how long were you engaged in the project? Well, as I said before, I decided to write three novels at the same time, th the first three parts of the series, in order to um, make the publishers interested, because it's very hard to, to get published at all. Mm -hmm. I think they publish one out of 2,000 manuscripts a year, something like that, that comes in. Um, so it's very hard. So I, I want to do something that they notice. If I write three, they would think, oh, she's quite creative. She's, um, she can do this. She, it's not just one book. That's what I was hoping for. And, um, well, apparently it, it looks like they, <laughs> <laughs> they believe that. <laughs> but it was hard work. You know, and no no feedback or anything. I was just sitting there writing the first three parts of the series. It took me four and a half years. Mm -hmm. And uh, I was... And no feedback at all. So 
several times I actually gave up, but I was encouraged by people around me to to go on with the project, and I did. So you I had hard. So you had I, never, I never actually thought that they were going to be published. Right, right. So you had to deliver all three novels in their completion to the publisher. Yes, I did. Oh, yikes! <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's a daunting task. Yikes. And um, do you have a kind of a solid group of, of readers, reliable readers there that sort of tell you where the holes are or, you know, where the story is faltering or where the characters don't make sense? Well, not really because, you know, I never let anyone read them apart from my family and a few close friends. It was not more than 10 people and they all loved my books. Right. Maybe because they're just being nice to me. I don't know. So... I, I didn't receive any critics those years, the four and a half years that it took me to write the first three parts. But then, when I had a publisher, and then I got some critics, and we could make it better, you know, yeah. as right. as the procedure is. Did you um, tell me a little bit about your revision process, and and you know, if you wrote all of the novels all the way through, and then you go back and sort of see where the holes are and revise from there, or do you sort of keep revising as you go along to make things right before you move on to the next section? Or tell me a little bit about that process. I, I as I mentioned before, I do think a lot before I start writing. So I, I, I'm just sitting there thinking for three or four months, and then when I start writing, it's all. So I won't change the story, maybe a few details to the better, of course, or hopefully. But um, I, um, I know exactly everything that will happen in each chapter uh, mm. before I start writing. So if I, if I, when I start uh, writing today, I, re I read what I wrote yesterday, and then that's uh, done with. So I don't go back after that. And tomorrow I will read what I wrote today. And that's it. And then I'm finished. When the book is finished, I'm finished. So I just send it in. I'm dying so of jealousy. That's how I work. But I know everybody <laughs> works differently. Yeah, your your organization is uh, is so admirable. I'm dying of jealousy here. This is, uh, you know, I, I've heard of these novelists, you know, being tortured over sentences for, you know, 10 years. So this is... This yeah. is so refreshing. So, who in the who in the gingerbread house gave you the most difficulty? Because there's a lot of obviously there's a lot of unsavory folk in here, uh, but they all are you know very sympathetic characters, all very well-rounded characters. Were there people in here that were harder for you to sort of get inside and you know write objectively from their from their perspective, or who gave you uh, who gave you difficulty character-wise? Do you mean the police or the victims or both? Both, yeah. Yeah, any character it, in the book. Well, not really because I always put a little bit of myself in each character. That's how you do it, isn't it? Uh, so, well, I recognize, I recognize myself in, in each and every one of them. So it's, uh, no, no one of them gave me some difficulties more than the others. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah, yeah. Do but you then I like them differently. I like some of them more than I like others, of course. Right, right. And the points that the points in the novel that gave you the most difficulty were there times that you know you kind of got halfway through it and realized certain plot points weren't working out, or something that you had planned out was was difficult, and writing yourself out of difficult situations. Um. 
Well, not really in that sense, but sometimes when I was writing those, you know, brutal murders, because in that book there are a few of them, so that could be quite hard to write those um, details about about brutality. That was the hardest part, because I, I, I actually don't have anything of that inside me. I'm not a brutal person, but it's uh, quite interesting to explore brutality as well as sick minds and, well, human beings in general. So it's like an odyssey, uh, exploring people who are not me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Especially having children in the house yourself and going back to these, uh, you know, I imagine it was a lot of tapping into, you know, events that happened in your own childhood with bullying and, and uh, victimization. And, uh, you know, I know it, it's hard to separate all of that out from your own life and your own experiences with your children in the house. That would be, I would guess that would be uh, tricky. It is, of course, yes. And always uh, with my own kids in mind as well, because as you know for sure, your own kids are more important than, than yourself. So, well, I don't want my own kids to go through what I went through as a kid. So that's been, you have to be on guard all the time to watch out for the kids and watch out for what's going on in school and so on. Yeah. Once and, the uh, and worse, even worse would be if my own kids were bullying other children, you know. <laughs> that right. would be even worse. I, I would never let that happen. Yeah, it's funny to be on the, uh, you, you never hear the other side of that story. You so rarely hear the other side of that story of the, uh, you know, we, we always can identify with the victims, so rarely can we identify with the, uh, with the perpetrators. That's, that's really Yes, true. but I think uh, as, as an adult now, I think that's a good thing because I think that kids uh, doing bad things should be forgiven, of course. It's very important that everyone has the chance to be forgiven, especially if the bad things you do, you do as a child. Right. So I, that's probably a good thing that they've all forgotten about bad things they did when they were kids. Yeah, and you know, part of the, you know, part of the growing up process, that's true. Yeah. And what identifies you as a person versus, you know, if your actions really identify you as a person or if they're sort of isolated events, that's, uh, yeah, worthwhile exploring. Yeah. Yeah, should be isolated events. Absolutely. Once the um, once the uh, the uh, series was finished, did you feel sort of satisfiedly finished with this, or do these characters sort of keep haunting you and revisiting you? I imagine that four and a half years spent with with people, uh, it would be hard to put them to bed completely. Do they uh, do they keep popping back up into your head, or do you feel totally done with them? But the series is not finished. Oh, you're still so, writing. Okay. Yeah, I'm still writing. The, uh, when I, you know, that project of writing three at the same time, that was just the first part of the project. Then when the books were pu published, I uh, continued writing others. So there are another two published in Sweden. So in Sweden right now there are five of them published, and I'm working on the sixth. And my plan is to probably write ten. Maybe I'm finished then. Then I think of it and see. Maybe. I, I retire, maybe not. <laughs> so how far ahead do you see into these? How f are, you, are you just present with the book that you're writing now, or do you see down the line to what's going to happen in book eight or nine? The first five uh, continues. Uh, it's a storyline that starts in the first book that's not actually finished until the fifth. Okay. And uh, I, 
I, I don't want to say too much about that, but it's uh, something that happens to one of the female officers. Uh, she's being raped in the first book, and that story goes on. Mm -hmm. And it, it's not finished until the fifth book, actually, when it's all when it's all over with okay. that part of the story. So obviously, I was thinking about the end of that story already when I started writing the first one. So sometimes you have to think ahead a lot, and sometimes it's just for one book. Apart from that storyline that goes on and on, I'm I'm just inside the book I'm working uh, I'm working with at the moment. It's very hard to think about um, the next book. So I, I start thinking of that at the same time when I finish the one I just do. I can't even keep my grocery list in my head. This is unbelievable. I'm totally... <laughs> <laughs> wow. Um, and do you read mysteries alongside of... Are you a mystery reader as well as a mystery writer? Because I would imagine... I mean, you know, I guess that can cut both ways, that it can either, you know, help you out to read other mystery writers or it can be distracting inside of your head while you're trying to do your own. Well, yeah, I, I was, uh, I, I did read a lot of uh, crime before, before I started this long project, but yeah, I don't do that much any, anymore because I don't want to get influenced by other authors and I don't want to be influenced by um, their language, their ideas, all that. Um, on the other hand, I learned to know a lot of crime writers. And when you're getting friends, everyone, you, you, you want to know them better by reading their books. So, and everybody gives me books, and I give them my books. And then when they come to me and say, oh, I read your latest book, it was great. And I feel embarrassed if I haven't read even one of theirs. <laughs> so I have to read some crime, but I... I tend not to. I try to read other books yeah. instead, other types. Do you find yourself working out elements of your own life in your stories that things will sort of crop up over the course of living that you find sort of sneaking in, not, not into the main plot line perhaps of a crime novel, but just, you know, human interactions or personal conflicts that you find that you are trying to work out with your characters? Absolutely something just crosses my mind and I, I, I'm so interested on, this, on the topic so I just put it inside the book I'm writing on. I want to write something about this but just a little bit, it, 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 not to take over the whole, the whole book but just I put, I put the, a little side story about this subject in this book. For example, um, something I read about in the papers that I want to explore, something my kids that happens to my kids in school or something that happens to me or in politics or well around you so so I do that all the time actually <laughs> love it we're Can't uh, stop myself <laughs> yeah yeah how could you I mean you know this is you know if you're writing over the course of years and years how do you not uh, how do you not let your life uh, be impacted by your writing and vice versa it's impossible it's impossible yeah um, unfortunately we're drawing down on our time but I'm wondering if you have writerly advice for for writers out there either mystery writers or just general general writerly advice well i think you should write uh, what about something that you are really interested in in an environment that you like or you know or you are interested in to explore because that makes it a lot easier if you if you feel like home in your environment and together with your characters yeah, that's, that's, uh, that's great advice. It's hard to spend this much time of your life and this much 
energy of your life not doing something that you're not completely engaged in so that's yeah you have to like the character somehow yeah because otherwise you get bored you have to like the process too it's so hard to sit down at the computer if you're not totally in love with this and uh or sit yeah. on your couch and think about it for six months. I love, I love how much you can hold in your head. We, uh, we have to, uh, we have to duplicate your brain. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. I think you are exaggerating a little bit there, but uh, no, I think it's good fun. Yeah. And I love my characters, and I, I want to, I want my readers to love my characters as well. So. Yeah, they are. They're, they're a great set of people. The, uh, I've, I've only read the Gingerbread House, but they're, they're. It, totally engaging people and it's really really fun to read and it's obviously it sounds like it's really fun to write Karen thank you so much for taking the time this morning this was a huge uh, huge treat thank you Marie for having me it was a great fun speaking to you thank you that was Karen Gerhardson the book uh, there's several books the book uh, the book that's out and about now there are three of them in the US the first is the gingerbread house and uh, they are uh, they are incredibly fun mysteries we will be right back here with you next Wednesday morning uh, talking terrorism next uh, 4th of July uh, terrorists in love is the subject of, uh, of next week's show so until next time Thanks so much for joining me. Have a great day and stay tuned for uh, Positive Vibrations, a little reggae coming up next on KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. Thanks for joining me. Mm-hmm.